in session number seven, chapter seven of the book of Ecclesiastes on our theme of study, living life backwards. Six ended with the question you know, of what good is that? You know, how can I know that you know, this is the thing that is good? Okay. These are the questions that he ended chapter six with. You know. And now in this particular chapter, the teacher, the preacher, Solomon, gives a change of pace. You know. Instead of having all those questions about you know, frustration and problems with life and the futility of life, he now changes space and now begins to give us some useful wisdom. This uh, chapter is more like the book of Proverbs, which gives us you know, different, different short, short Proverbs. So this uh, evening, this chapter 7, we will divide it into two sections. The first eight verses are like comparisons. This is better than this. This is better than this. You know. In terms of, you know, when he ended the last chapter with a question, what good is there? So now in these first eight verses, he's speaking to us the good that is there in this world and how we can find it. And from verse 9 to 29, it is actually all little, little proverbs. You know, each shadow line, if you were to say, is a separate proverb in itself. So that's going to be our broad outline for our study this evening. Okay. So the first uh, you know, eight verses can be called as the better than comparisons. The better than comparisons. And the first you know, better than you find in the first verse itself, where we read, you know, a good name is better than precious ointment, or a good name is better than fine perfume. The word that is used there for ointment or perfume literally means good oil, meaning the highest grade of olive oil, which was used for medicines, perfumes, and religious anointing. So, over here is a good name is very, very valuable. It is very, very precious. Also, there is a little play on words and a poetic alliteration between you know, the Hebrew words that are used for name and ointment. The Hebrew word that is used for name is the word shame and S-H-E-M. And the word that is used for ointment or perfume is the word shemen. You know. So it is alliteration using the same starting letter and also it is a little play on words. So precious oils you know, were very, very expensive. They were considered as a valuable commodity. It was considered as a luxury for those who were able to enjoy this. So he's saying, yes, starting off to saying, look here, a good name has a value. A good name has a value. It is definitely a, a precious thing. So each day when we start our lives, you know, our focus has to be, Lord, I want to make sure that I seek to do the right thing, which would give a good name, a good name. Now, when you're thinking about a good name, okay, you know, the, in the scriptures, you know, a lasting name came only through loving God and God in turn loving us and we are living for his name. So that is the emphasis of the good name. It is not just a good reputation. 
but a good name considering in the basis of how God views us. You know? And when God looks at our lives and we are living lives that are pleasing before him, the Lord will say, hey, here's a person who has a good name. Think about Abraham, who went from being an idol worshiper to a friend of God. He had a good name. Or when you think about Moses, who went from being a murderer to a leader of God's people, he had a good name. Or think about David, though he failed tragically, he was still called a man after God's own heart. He had a good name. Or when you are thinking about the woman you know, who you know, washed the feet of Jesus with her tears and poured ointment on his you know, feet you know, on, his, uh, on him, if you notice, Jesus at the end of it says, you know, this act of love you know, will be told wherever the gospel is preached. Okay? That was a good name. That's a legacy that she left behind. Okay? So a good name is not to us trying to keep up a reputation or an appearance, but about loving God and his glory, living for him. Now, Oftentimes, people may use perfumes to hide a particular scent. So even in the world that we live in, we can be anesthetized, if you were to say, you know, by the perfumes of the culture around us and think, hey, that is what a good name is all about, so that people will think good of us. No, no, that is not what the good name is mentioned over here. The good name that is mentioned here is that God will speak of us and say, here's a person after my own heart. Okay, so this is why we need to be careful that they are not living for good name of this world, but good name from the perspective of God wants of us. And if that is it, then that is a good thing. And that is a good thing that we can definitely pursue. The second comparison that he's speaking of is in, a, in verse 1 itself, where he speaks about the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. In fact, the next three better statements center around death. The first one here is speaking about the day of death is better than the day of birth. The next one, the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. And the third one that follows soon after is the grief is better than laughter. Now, they all seem very puzzling statements, you know. Why would days of sadness be better than days of joy and laughter? So when you're looking at this first one, <laughs> where he says, you know, the day of my death will be a better than the day of my birth, okay? Now, you know, two aspects of it, okay? If you're looking at it from the first angle of a reputation that he's spoken of in the first part of verse 1, a good name is better, then at the end of our lives, to hear God saying, well done, good and faithful servant, you know, that is a good thing. So that is the day of death at the end when we, God has looked at our lives and given us his affirmation. That is definitely a good thing. Or in verse 8, where he speaks, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. So he's speaking about, again, similar thought of at the end, the accomplishment that is there is definitely better. Life is like a picture in a frame. Death is what frames the life. You know, that is a certain thing. Life is here, but the frame is death. You know, that is what is the boundary, if you were to say. 
The average person has about 27,000 days to live their life on earth. And after that, all our opportunities to learn, to love, to leave an impact is all gone. So the days that God gives to us, either we can waste our life or we can live life in a profitably. The question we must ask ourselves this evening is, since none of us knows the end of our days, you know, what do you want your last day to be like? What do you want your last day to be like? You know, There was a song by the second chapter of Acts, which was a Christian music group many years ago, which went something like this. If this was the very last day of my life, I wouldn't cry because I have been waiting for it. So that's what another writer is speaking about here. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul writing says, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and to die is gain. So from a personal perspective, you know, what is your perspective of death? Or also this verse can be looked at from the perspective of people who die around you, okay, you know, when you consider the birth and death, okay, what is your attitude? What is your attitude? You know, this is what when he speaks about a, you know, a time of mourning, a, a funeral is better than a time of rejoicing. Now, this is not how we would see life, isn't it? You know, but he says, hey, this is what life is all about. If we can know that there is a, a border, there is a death, there is an end, you know, then you're working towards that end. And knowing that you, know, you do not know when it is going to be, each day then is lived out in a way that would please God, in a way that would bring glory to God. Now, this is what it means when, we look, you know, when you're looking at the theme of living life backwards. Knowing that that is going to be the end, now you work you know, backwards and see how we are going to live our lives today. The third you know, comparison is in verse 2, where he says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to their heart. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And if you notice at the end of verse, so it says, the living will lay it to their heart. The meaning of laying it to your heart means to consider it, to think about it, to ponder upon it. Now, in our usage, when you think of something close to the heart, we will speak about more of something that is close to our emotions. But when the Old Testament talks about the heart, you know, it is oftentimes talking about the way we think. You know, the heart is the seat of thinking and not your feeling in the Hebrew thinking process. So when he's saying over here, the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting, he says, hey, think about that. Think about the lessons that you can really learn from a funeral, from a mourning time, than the lessons that you want to enjoy and learn from feasting. <laughs> okay. The contemporary English version renders this phrase as funerals remind us that we all must die. Okay. And we see the same thought in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary, which says, every funeral anticipates our own. Okay. And in Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses prays to God, saying, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 120 years, and uh, 
And when he writes this psalm, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days. Remember, funerals are not for the dead, you know. They are for the living to remember they will face the end of their lives on this earth as well. It's a call to truly live in the light of the fact that your life is short, temporary, and fragile. Funerals are a rebuke on the pride of our lives that says that they will not end, you know, that life is going to go on forever. Funerals actually points to our own end that we will have to face one day. Okay, so, so the writer here is saying when you consider about funeral, when we think about it, when you observe it and learn some lessons from it, then you are able to live your life meaningfully here on earth. But if you don't want to think about the end and you say life is only for enjoyment, you have missed out on what life is all about. Martin Luther put it across this way when he said, invite death into our presence when it is still at a distance and not on the move. Invite death into our presence when it is still at a distance and not on the move. In other words, don't think about dying when it's just coming close, you know. Even when it is a far away off, and I live with that reality that there is going to come a time when each one of us will die. Verse 3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. You know? Now, if you notice all these things, if at surface value when we read it, you may say, hey, that doesn't make sense. You know? That's so absurd. That's a topsy-turvy living. It's an upside-down thinking. But that's the type of living that God wants us to live, isn't it? Even when you think about the Beatitudes, it doesn't make sense for the common man. But that's the type of life God wants us to live. Why? Because thinking from the biblical perspective is oftentimes so opposite from the world's thinking. So what does this mean when it says grief is better than laughter and the sadness of face, the heart is made glad? When we are disturbed by sorrow and we are disturbed by the funerals that interrupt our lives, this is good. Sorrow is good, not because death is good, but because this forces us to consider the end of all mankind, including our own end, and understanding that we are mortal beings. Okay? So, the good that we can encounter in this world is not the laughter, the joy, the partying, the feasting, you know, all those things are all temporary. It is all passing away. It is never going to satisfy. So when grief comes in, when sadness comes in, it's an opportunity to think things through, to think you know, things through. That's what you know, he is speaking about here. If you notice in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 4, Jesus said that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. No. So, here he's speaking about the response that we can have when we go through the trials of life. If we don't view it from the emotional angle of the heart, but from the thinking angle of the heart, we are going to learn lessons from those adverse situations that come into our lives, including death. You know, Tommy Nelson, in his commentary, on the book of Ecclesiastes writes, and our trials always have a very beneficial purpose. Trials show you what you are and that you can't make it on your own. Trials perfect you. Trials bring you to the end of your physical intellectual rope. Trials make you pray. 
Trials make you go to the word. Trials make you trust. Trials also prove you, testing your character. Trials also humanize you, making you sympathetic to the sufferings of others. They do good things in us. The only problem is that these trials are things we don't necessarily want to experience. So he's saying when you go through a sad time, you know, if you're really viewing it from the right perspective, from your thinking, you think things through, then you're going to learn some precious, precious lessons on how to live our lives here on earth. So Solomon is saying that God wants to give us a good name, not just a good time. And pain is an integral, integral part of that process. Why? Because good times can fool us. Good times you can think, hey, this is what life is all about. When the bad times come, that's why when reality hits us, hey, this is real, that's the time we can see things from the right perspective. So there is definitely a period of grief or sadness when different adverse things come into our lives. But there's also an important thing that we don't treat it flippantly, you know, and think about drowning our sorrows with partying or you know, pleasure. But we use those you know, times of adversities to analyze, study God's word, see things, see life from a fresh perspective so that we would really be able to learn those precious lessons and draw closer to God. A lot of people, when adversity hits them, you know, it may not necessarily be a death, it could be any other calamity. When adversity hits them, if they have not really thought things through from that, you know, and become emotional over it and be, you know, just emotionally sad rather than see what God is trying to teach and, you know, what they can learn from that, you know, they can really go off track and get depressed. But, you know, the teacher here, Solomon, is coming to this conclusion to say that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, okay? You know, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. You don't have to drown out your sorrow by replacing it with pleasure. But if you think things through when you're going through adverse situations as a believer, you recognize that God is the one who is in charge of everything that happens to us. And we are able to see things in perspective. You know, there could be a need for you know, a recalibration, a recentering of our lives. You know? And we learn to you know, understand that we cannot take life for granted. And we are able to appreciate the seasons of life that God gives to us. Okay, So sadness you know, is good. That's what the scripture is teaching us here. Then in verses 5 and 6, you know, he says, It's better to listen to the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. You know, than the song of fools. Now, you know, when somebody comes and tells us, Hey, you know, I need to talk with you and I see this is a problem that you are having or this is the wrong that you are doing. You know, oftentimes people don't want to listen to that. You know, they would be rather upset with that. But they'd be happy to listen to the song of the fools or individuals who will trumpet their goodness or would speak good about them, you know, and say, hey, you did a good job, you did a good job, okay? So Solomon is saying here, be careful, learn from rebukes, you know, and not only live for people to pat you on the back and say, 
you did a good job, okay. You can put it in this way, learn to keep one ear open and one ear closed, you know. Listen to the wise, you know, but keep your ears closed to the ones that are, you know, not wise, the ones who are fools. Now, who are the fools, you know? How can you find out, you know, what is you know, their understanding of a fool, you know? A fool fades very, very quickly, you know. Rather, you know, what he says, it's a very a flippant talk, you know. What he says is just for the moment. That's what verse you know, 6 compares, you know, the laughter of the fool to the crackling of burning thorns under a pot, okay. That's what, you know, the laughter of the fool is compared to. It's a very momentary thing, you know. And you may feel good at that moment, you know, but it's all gone. You have not learned any, you know, great lessons. A fool will show a lot of emotion and make a lot of promises in a loud volume at the beginning of a lengthy trial, but are gone, but even before the real work has begun. You know, they don't hang around with you, okay. Now, here again in this verse, you know, the Hebrew words that are used here have a lot of alliteration and also have a lot of play on words. You know. The Hebrew words for song, pot, and thorns, okay, these three words. The word for song in Hebrew is shir, S-H-I-R. The word for pot is sir, S-I-R. And the word for thorns is sirim, okay. All starts with the same Hebrew letter you know, and also has a little similarity. The Moffat translation, you know, tries to get the whole meaning of, you know, these Hebrew words in English, where it translates this verse like this. For like nettles cracking, crackling under kettles is the cackle of a fool, okay. For the, like nettles crackling under kettles is the cackle of the fool. You know, the K NKJV study Bible points out that burning thorns will provide quick flames, little heat, lot of noise, just like the sudden outburst of laughter among fools. But there is more noise than substance. So he says, hey, look here, you take the option. Whether you're going to opt out for the song of the fools, you know, or you're going to listen to the rebuke of the wise. Oftentimes, you know, the, the smirking or the laughter of the fools would also be, you know, to the rebuke or the advice that is given by the wise, you know, he say, hey, don't listen to that, you know, that's rubbish, you know, that's what the fool will say, you know, but the wise one would be willing to learn from the wise, the rebuke of the wise, and be willing to learn by it. The words of those who tell you what you want to hear will make a lot of noise, you know, but there's no lasting value to their words. Their words will not be useful to your life. So the question is, who would you listen to? If you really want to enjoy life the way God has created you to be, then be wise. Listen to the wise. Even their rebuke. Don't live only for the people of the fools who will sing about you. Number six, you know, shortcuts are dead ends. Shortcuts are dead ends. Verse seven says, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. Now, this verse 7 may seem a little out of place because, you know, so far he's been speaking about comparisons. Suddenly, this verse is now speaking about giving bribes, you know. What does this mean? How does this really fit in, okay? The fitting in would be in speaking about, you know, 
the problems a person goes through, the grief that a person goes through, the troubles that a person goes through, okay? And he's given all these, you know, opposites, you know. Now, he's saying, hey, be careful. Don't say I want a shortcut, you know. Don't say I will give a bribe so that I am freed from all these things. Shortcuts are not really going to help, you know. So verse 7 may be a warning that if the pressure or the oppression by circumstance is too great, a person may crack under that and say, hey, look here, I'll give a bribe so that, you know, life is going to be easy. He says, don't give in to that. Don't give in to that. So verse 7 actually is like a, a midpoint warning, you know, and also an encouragement to say, stay on course against all the pressure, against all the enticement of the world to give in and to behave like you know, them. Don't give in to that, you know, stand firm. Then in verse 8, you know, the next comparison, he says, the end of the matter is beginning is uh, better than its beginning. The end of the thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You know? Now, this does not mean that it's better for something to be over and done away with because it was bad. Okay, But this is speaking about the end of anything being better because of the result, because of what has been achieved. It is not a question of, I wish everything would get over, you know, or when you go through trials, you know, to say, I wish I had the wings of a bird and I will fly away. I want everything to get over. No, that is not what he is speaking about here. What he is speaking about here, the end of our lives, having achieved something is better than the beginning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus said, he who will endure till the very end, the same will be saved you know so this is why you know you know it's speaking about you know a one who is patient till the very end one who is going through all the struggles and still staying true till the very end that is the good that is the better one not wanting to you know opt out of life you know not willing to say i will die for my faith but i don't want to you know live for the lord here on earth you know no all those are now, cop-outs, you know, but here, the scripture is saying here, the eighth one, a patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Patience is required to be able to finish the task and to get to the end of the matter. A proud person can have a very good start, but it is the patient person who has a good finish. It's not the beginning of the game that matters. It's the ending that matters, isn't it? Patience through the struggles of life. Stand firm. That's what the writer, the preacher is encouraging us to do over here. Through all these comparisons, what he's brought to our minds is, hey, there's a starting, there's an ending. In the middle, how do you live? Don't live like the world is living for pleasure. You know, Be willing to allow God to change you, learn from those adverse situations. Be patient, be patient, press on till the very end. Then in verses 9 to 29, he gives us some practical steps or practical helps to walk in wisdom, you know, very specific, simple, practical proverbs, if you were to say. The first one, live deliberately, live deliberately. Do not allow emotions to control 
your life choices. Verse 9 tells us, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Okay. He says, you know, do not be eager in your heart to be angry. You know, sometimes a person can be angry with the past. You know, oh, this is what happened, this is what happened, that person did this, or God did this, God allowed this. You know, you can be angry with the past, and as a result, what happens for your life today? It is still lived with anger. And the desire to avoid pain or grief or even adversity can lead us to be angry very quickly when our comfort is disrupted. When things don't go our way, we can easily get angry. Like little children, like spoiled children, you know, stomp on our feet and say, why did this happen? You know, now that's not the understanding of how we should live. We should live deliberately. Do not allow emotions to control your life choices. Okay. Do not allow your emotions to control your life choices. If you allow your emotions, you know, the negative emotions, the anger to drive our lives, we will soon get disconnected with God. Okay. But remember, controlling our emotions, you know, we have a role to play, isn't it? You know, it is our will that comes into being. You know. Now, you know, it, we may say, no, no, it was just a burst of you know, anger, you know, there's a flab and a build-up and it just burst. No, no, it's something that you have allowed to do. Oftentimes, maybe if you're angry with somebody and then you're letting go there and you get a phone call from a good friend, you know, your voice will immediately change, your emotions will immediately change, you know. What does that show? It shows basically that you're in control, you know. You can control your anger. So, learn to control your anger. How do you control your anger? Learn each day at a time. Live deliberately. And make sure that you are not you know, putting your emotions on the negative things that have happened, but see things from God's perspective. The second one, live presently. Living in the past is terribly unwise and grossly unhealthy. Verse 10 tells us, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. You know, he says, live for today. Don't live for the past. Or don't long for the past. Don't think that the past was better. Oftentimes when we go through you know, adverse situations, we may look at the past and say, oh, those were the days. <laughs> those were the glorious days. But we forget the bad times during the past as well. Think, for example, the children of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, God has brought them out of Egypt. But what were they complaining about? You know, they're saying, hey, we had garlic, we had good food there, here there's nothing, even though God was providing them with manna every day. And in the wilderness, they were longing to go back to Egypt. They had forgotten that the Egyptians were killing their male children, you know, and oppressing them with you know, harsh labor. They forgot all that. But they only thought about the good food that was there, you know. So this is what happens if you are, you know, seeing things, you know, from the negative, the problems that you're going through today and says, oh, I wish the old days will come back again. Those were the days, you know. No, no, don't look back at the past. You cannot move forward looking backward, you know. Remember Lot's wife, when she turned back and looked, she became a pillar of salt, isn't it? So. 
scripture is teaching over here that be careful. Don't live in the past. Live in the present. Live in the future. So Solomon is saying here that fools talk a lot about the good old days. But going forward is God's plan. In a, and when you want to start forward, then it starts with each day. So we must learn to appreciate our past, but not worship it or try to dwell on it for too long. Yesterday is gone. We should celebrate the past and be grateful for God's faithfulness that brought us through it. But we must be willing to move on ahead and live for the future. So wisdom says, live now. Yesterday is a memory. Make new ones today for tomorrow. He's he's speaking in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. He's saying here, wisdom and wealth is definitely wonderful. Okay, But if you're looking for a real protection, True protection comes from wisdom and not from wealth. Somebody has put it across this way. And they say that to navigate the rough seas of life, two oars are particularly good to have in the boat, wealth and wisdom. Wealth can be a very good and helpful thing as money can make some of life's pains and problems go away. But wisdom is even more valuable than wealth. In fact, Wisdom can save your life. And that's what you know, he's emphasizing over here. Solomon has talked about money earlier. Solomon has talked about the futility of wealth earlier. Solomon has talked about, okay, I have all this money and then I die. And then what happens to the next generation if they're not utilizing it properly? It's a waste. You know? So what he's really saying over here is teaching our children to connect you know, what God says about life to their daily choices, it's what true wisdom is all about. And lessons in wisdom aren't designed to keep them from having fun, but to provide the means for a long and satisfied life. Okay? So that they don't make poor choices. They don't squander their money. So these are the two options that he's saying. Yes, the money is good, but wisdom, he's saying, is even better. Number four, you know, in verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? God is the one who is sovereign. If he has bent it, can you straighten it? So he says, live soberly. Live soberly. Recognize that you can't fix everything, you know, and you can't fix everyone as well. Okay? Don't try to live fixing somebody. Okay? Oftentimes, when things don't go well, you know, people will use that phrase, and I'll fix him. You know, no, no, you can't fix anybody. You know, you can't fix any situation. We cannot fix all that is broken in life. You know, we should always be compassionate, but we cannot take the full responsibility for the troubles of another person. If we have no limit to our help, the recipient will learn to do nothing for themselves. So. We can't fix people. Remember the simple you know, uh, understanding that hurt people hurt people. They have gone through you know, different hurts. As a result, they respond in that manner. They are broken. You know, so as a result, they 
take out their vengeance maybe on somebody else. And if you are trying to fix those situations, remember, you know, you cannot do it. Solomon is saying here, we have to leave room for God to work in people and situations. So even in a relationships, you know, do not work on trying to change another person, fix another person. No, God is the one who is able to. So trust in God. Trust in God. Don't think I can handle it. I can fix anything. I can fix any problem. That's a proud spirit, not a humble spirit. Fifthly, verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So he says, live thankfully. There will be good days. There will also be bad days. But every day is still a gift from God. So don't you know, sort of be upset you know, when a bad day comes. Okay? You won't win every day. Not every day is going to be a harvest day, isn't it? There is a time of sowing, there is a time of reaping, there is a time of plowing. You know? Not every day is payday. You get your pay you know, maybe once a month. So, you know? There are times and seasons. You know? So hard times help us to appreciate the easy ones, you know, the good times. You know, we can understand, hey, we went through these hard times, but these good times have come. So it isn't God's plan for you to know that everything will always work out. You know, oftentimes, you know, we may be saying, oh, but doesn't the Bible says God will make everything work out for our good. But it would not necessarily work out to the good that we think we want, isn't it? You know, so live thankfully that God is the one who is in charge. You know, whether it's a good day, whether it's a bad day, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, that God is in charge. Give thanks to God for that, that he's in control. And as a result, life will be different. Number six, verses you know, 15 to 17, he says, I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? You know, he's basically saying here, live sensibly. Okay, Keep a balance between the serious and the silliness of life. Okay, Or keep a balance because between what is true and what is not true. You know? Learn to enjoy life, you know. Don't be so serious all the time, you know. Be careful, yes, you know. Be healthy, yes. But don't also be a hypochondriac, constantly worried about different things, you know. Learn to strike a balance between you know, true and the enjoyment and the serious issues of life, you know. And learn to time the two appropriately as well. Remember, a bow always bent is easy. To break. So that's where there has to be the time of relaxation. There has to be the time of seriousness. And if you notice, the Lord put it into place, you know, even in the seven days that he created and said, okay, this one day I'm set up, setting apart a time for rest. So learn to have that balance. Number seven, live expansively. You know, verse 18 says, it is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Live and learn. Expand your horizons. Horizons. Don't be stuck 
in uh, rut. Okay. Learn to fear God. You know. Grasp life. Grasp God's hands. You know. Instead of throwing both your hands up and saying, God, why has this happened? You know. Instead of complaining to God and saying, why God? One life is there. The other in one hand, your life is there. In the other hand, you hand it over to God and say, God, here's the situation. What can I learn from this? You have allowed this to come into my life, you know, teach me. And as a result, if you have this teachable spirit, instead of you know, immediately saying, why God? If you're constantly saying, Lord, what can I learn from this? Life will definitely be different. Try it out, you know, and you'll find that you'll have a much more, you know, a pleasant attitude to life, knowing that God is in charge, in control. Then in verses 21 and 22, he says, Also do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you have also realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. You know, live graciously. Don't take everything people say to heart. Okay. Along with learning when to take something seriously, you know, he's also saying, you know, don't take seriously the words of others. Okay. Learn to be gracious to others, you know, even when they hurt you, because that's a sign of maturity in your faith walk. Okay. Because you must understand, hey, you know, they have said something, they didn't mean it, maybe, or they were in a fit of and a, and a temper. You also have done it like that, you know, you have also not been in control of your emotions and have said something. So be gracious to people, you know, and do not take everything that people say to heart. Because if you do that, you know, if you make too much of it, you know, then you'll end up bearing wounds, you know, you know, and you'll have scars later. Oh, he said this, he did that, and you're constantly upset with that. No, don't allow that to happen for you. Live graciously live graciously number nine verses 23 to 29 you know wisdom offers you know, a warning offers a warning you know this is his you know, personal observations of life you know so this in you know, a section if you notice moves away from a, a single line proverb into a, a you know a paragraph of his observation of life Verse 23 onwards says, I tested all this with wisdom and said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Discover this, said the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking, but I have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God fright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, what he's saying over here, you know, oftentimes people may be offended by this verse where he says, I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. What he's really saying here is, hey, look here, you know, as a king, I have tried to put all these things, you know, to my test, you know. But what I really recognized is, you know, that I was weak in this area 
of giving in to the desires, my fleshly passions, you know, with the woman. So a couple of things he you know, is pointing out. You know, he is not you know, saying that all women are bad, okay? But he's saying, look, yeah, I was you know, exposed to these type of women, and because you know, I yielded to them, this is my observation. So he admits, first of all, that he's tempted to see them in a wrong way. He was looking at them purely for sensual reasons, physical beauty, or maybe when, you know, as a king, you know, as a bartering system for you know, establishing peace between you know, nations. But he also says that he looked at this as a, a king. You know. So if you are the king and here's a person coming to you, you know, wanting to have a relationship, they have their own hidden agendas. Knowing Solomon's weakness, they were willing to sort of play on that. Okay. So at the end of his, he's saying, you know, I had little chance to meet a woman who reflected integrity. Okay. Not because, you know, they didn't exist, but because he didn't have any access to them. So what he's saying is, okay, all that I've spoken of, I put to the test, but I had this weak spot, you know, and the woman, you know, worked on that and I yielded to that. So he's saying, you know, be careful, be careful, okay. Do not, you know, sort of, you know, uh, want to hold everything that you want for your pleasure, you know, hold on to God, because if you hold on to God, rather than seeking your pleasure, then you will find that will be true enjoyment, you know. Couple of options that we can have when we go through the tough situations of life, okay. Option A will be to get better, okay. When you lose who or what you enjoyed. If it's a pleasure that you lost or it's a person that, you know, you lost, you know. One option is to get bitter and angry and say, you know, what is life now? You know, why did God allow this? Option B would be to enjoy nothing, to enjoy no one, to have no relationships, you know, so that you would not get hurt, you know. So you're not involved at all, you know. You're distancing yourself from everything. But option C is to enjoy what you have, what God has given you for as long as you can. And when it is not there, you know, when it is gone, to be grateful to God for what God gave you for that short period. So life is short, relationships are short, you know. So instead of being upset with adverse situations, you know, he's concluding this by saying, look, I made a mistake, you know, I erred in this area of women, you know, but he's saying, you, when you're looking at relationships itself, you know, remember not to use those relationships, but to build up your relationship with God and the relationships that he does give us here on earth to enjoy that relationship. Number one, of Christianity as more pertinent for this life or for after your death. Number two, what areas of your life do you need to grow in wisdom right now? And who can you ask to obtain that wisdom? Do the people in your life who speak into your decisions fit more in the category of wise or foolish? When people come to you for counsel, do you honestly believe you are a source of wise advice? What aspect of God's better wisdom seems hard 
to love naturally for you. How has learning the wisdom of God in this chapter spoken to you today? What work are you aware that God is doing in your midst through your joys or adversities right now? Why do we find it difficult to love the fact that life has limitations? Number nine, time you went to a funeral, how did you feel? What can you learn from that? And number 10, which of these things, anger, impatience, greed, nostalgia, do you need to ask God to help you deal with more wisely? Let's bow our heads in prayer together.